Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. HHS released a proposed rule at the end of July that would make significant revisions to Section 1557 of the ACA a section of the law that deals with non-discrimination. NAHU submitted comments in response to the proposed rule this week, outlining what we support and where we have concerns. Here to discuss our letter on this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour is Marcy Buckner. So, we discussed Section 1557 of the ACA a little bit back in July, but For context, can you briefly summarize this section of the law and the role that it plays for the ACA overall? Sure. This section prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, and disability in certain health programs and activities. And so what Section 1557 seeks to do is to basically strengthen civil rights protections for patients and consumers in programs that are funded by the federal government. So making sure that there is equal accessibility and no discrimination on who is able to actually access these programs and and medical plans. What is HHS seeking to do with this proposed rule? What are some of the changes that they seek to implement? Well, Dan, there were a number of different items that under the Trump administration were kind of walked back when it came to protections for different protected entities, things like gender identification and reproductive health care. We also saw last year the Supreme Court decision in Bostock versus Clayton, which reaffirmed protections from discrimination for seeking reproductive health services. And so the Biden administration was really using this rule to try to codify what the Supreme Court decided in the Bostock ruling, while also reinstating some of those protections that came about during the Obama administration, were walked back a little bit during the Trump administration, and now they're, they're seeking to put those back into place. And... We discussed the proposed rule in a little more detail back on our July 29th edition of the podcast when this rule was first proposed. So there are a few areas in our comments where we sought further guidance and clarification from the agency, starting with exactly what entities this rule applies to. Is that correct? That's correct, Dan. There were some questions that we had about what they meant by health programs and plans that received federal funding. And I think some of this, we we probably would have had these questions pre-pandemic, but post-pandemic, the questions were just really emphasized because when we're looking at especially employer health plans and whether they have received federal funds, this brought a huge question to our comments. And like I said, especially in light of the pandemic, where previously we may have said, 
okay, well, what if there's an employer health plan and they have folks that are on Medicare because they've aged into Medicare. And so they may be receiving funds in somewhat of a pass-through form um, in that way because they have some of their 65-plus group folks on Medicare instead of on their employer plan. Is that considered receiving federal funds because they're not paying full freight for that Medicare coverage? But in light of the pandemic, our questions stem around things like, well, what about things like PPP funding and other items that employers were qualified to receive because of the pandemic, but they could use towards healthcare costs? Is that considered receiving federal funds for healthcare if they're still purchasing a private plan with those funds? How does all of this work together? So our big question was about when it comes to who this applies to was outside of those traditional plans that we think of as receiving federal funds, what exactly does that mean and how does it touch employer-sponsored plans and does it touch those employer-sponsored plans? Because if so, then we need to make sure that these group plans are aware of being in compliance with these non-discrimination rules. And what did NHU recommend HHS do in regards to smaller entities? So the proposed rule says that covered entities with 15 or more employees are to have a specific Section 1557 compliance coordinator on staff. We suggested that this might be difficult for folks that are in that smaller group range. They may not be able to have the human capital and financial costs of designating a specific employee to be responsible for compliance. So our recommendation there was to raise the threshold so that it would be a much larger than businesses with, with 15 or more employees. And, and I'm saying 1515 for those of you who might think I'm saying 50 because that's normally the threshold for small businesses when we're talking about employer-sponsored coverage and the employer mandate. And that is 5050. Here I am saying 1515. So as you can imagine, smaller groups really aren't able to have someone that's designated just to this because of that cost. And then in addition, the rule is also saying for those smaller groups, so 15 or more employees are to develop and implement grievance procedures for employees and others that believe that these changes have been violated, that the covered entity is what they're calling the groups here, they violated the non-discrimination rule. And so again, here, we are suggesting that they use a larger number when they're looking at the size of a group that should be putting together their own process to go through these grievances. And here we're suggesting, and as we did with the other provision, that they look at the Small Business Administration and look to them, the SBA, to offer up a suggestion of what size groups should actually be doing this as compared to this 15 or more, because 1515 just sounds very, very small to be able to be in compliance with this and actually put together a procedure that is worthwhile and works and can benefit those that are covered by these plans. And we had a few more suggestions for HHS in a few different categories, including um, when it comes to pregnancy discrimination, as well as the rule proposed rules timeline for plan design changes. So what did we suggest in those areas? 
Yeah, on pregnancy discrimination, we looked at the way that the proposed rule clarifies the definition of discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, and the proposed rule clarifies that that includes pregnancy and other related conditions. But we asked for more clarification here because of the way that the discrimination protections relate to and might be different from those under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. So we wanted to make sure that we understood how these two work together, the existing Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the additional protections that they're seeking to put here for pregnancy and other related conditions, especially in light of the recent Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court. It isn't really clear what HHS is seeking to do here. It's not an attempt to codify Dobbs or, or the inverse of the Dobbs decision. We know that for sure, but we just want to make sure that we're understanding how existing law and this clarification of on the basis of sex when it looks to pregnancy and related conditions, how those work together and how they'll be implemented. And then separately, on the timeline for plan design changes, we believe that for some plans, this could be a, a very significant change and need a lot more time to be able to be in compliance. So something that we asked for was that any final regulation would be effective no earlier than January 1 of 2024. And then with that, we also emphasize that for group health plans and insurance issuers that may have non-calendar year plans, that it be implemented on the first day of the new plan year on or after January 1 of 2024, so that we would have over one year to be able to have plans integrate any changes before being in compliance with this rule. Regarding accessibility requirements outlined by the proposed rule, what did NAHU tell the agency there? So, so there's two accessibility requirements. One is the website accessibility and the other is language accessibility. So we'll start with website. And here uh, HHS is asking whether a covered entity's website should be subject to the accessibility requirements. And what we expressed was that this could be very costly for some covered entities, for some employers and plans to be able to put into place if they are smaller. And so we did once again request an exemption for some of those smaller businesses and suggested that HHS reach out to, again, the Small Business Administration, the SBA, to determine exactly where they were going to draw that line for defining small business. because. As I mentioned earlier, we look at the number 50, 50 for when we're looking at, well, for most states, some are 100 for California, New York, and a few others for determining whether you're a small or large employer under the employer mandate. But when we talk about business practices, looking at a smaller and large employer, the Small Business Administration defines it very differently. Sometimes it says 500 or less, sometimes using other metrics. So here we suggested they reach out to the SBA to determine exactly where that threshold should fall. And then on the language accessibility, HHS here is asking for comments from stakeholders on how HHS can assist in helping covered entities in meeting the requirements for language accessibility, because there are about 15 different languages that are required to have materials available to those covered lives. 
So here we suggested that the best thing that HHS could do is provide clear sub-regulatory guidance, including templates for the required notifications so that it would be a little bit easier for covered entities to provide these and, and be able to kind of check off what they have and making sure that they're meeting all of the language accessibility requirements. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So Marcy, what are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to our members in Florida and South Carolina and the other states that were impacted by Hurricane Ian. Not just our members, but their friends and families that are in those areas. And because of the devastation caused by Hurricane Ian, NAHU has activated the UNITE program to help members in those states who have been affected by the disaster. So you can go to NAHU.org to help and donate now. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.